Well, good morning. And good morning to those watching online and in our traditions venue this morning. I am excited about what the Lord is doing and all sorts of uh, wonderful problems to solve. When God is doing what he does and reaching people, then all of us disciples are challenged to make disciples, right? And uh, that is the season that we're in. I'm excited to be in that season with you and to keep learning and growing along with you. Um, To that end, you know, the Holy Spirit is doing some great things in our church. I've heard a bunch of testimonies in the last couple of weeks of just how God is moving. A a business owner uh, talked to me last night and just said, hey, those messages on how to handle crisis, he's like, unfortunately, I got to put those into practice this week in my business, but they worked. You know, God helped me, and things ended way better than I would have expected. And then another gentleman who's been in our church a long time came and said to me, he's like, hey, Caleb, I was brushing my teeth Monday morning, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me that I need to be more spiritually hungry, and I'm going after God, and it's a fresh season. And then last night, I got a a word from one of our prayer warriors um, who I asked her permission to share this, but her name is Debbie, and she is just one of my personal prayer warriors, a leader on our prayer team. And she shared a word. She said that the Holy Spirit had spoken to her in her devotions, devotional time and said, you know what, as I've been praying about this this week, I kind of felt like the Lord wanted me to share it with you and maybe it's for the church. And my practice with that is to pray about it and say, Lord, is this something that you want to share with the church? And I felt like this was this morning. So before we get into the message, I want to read this to you. And, and it's a handwritten note, photoed and sent to me. So be patient with me uh, as I read it. But um, it said this, and I think this is a good word for us as we look at the challenge of three services. You know what we've discovered as a staff, as a board, in our prayer and worship night, what is the first thing that we think of when change happens? How does this affect me, right? And that's normal. And, and yet, what God calls us to do is to think, how does this affect everyone else? And what are we supposed to do about it? And I thought this was a timely word. She, she writes this um, as the Lord was speaking to her. It says, God is powerful and he can do it all. But for our sakes, he includes us in his plans. We need to be a participant, not a spectator. And can I just say that's so well said, and I think that's a timely word for us. We are never called to be spectators. We are called to be participants, though we are not qualified, right? When we participate, here's here's what the Lord is speaking to her about it, though. When we participate, we get the joy and deep, satisfied fulfillment of victory, And appreciate the fruit of the win when we have sacrificed something that was a part of that win. A sports team, an army, both have key participants who are the most prominent in the battle, but there are numerous others who have skin in the game, which are not on the front lines, yet still participants. And as a participant, they are poised for joy in the win. But those who do not participate in the win don't have that. They're indifferent about the win. As an outsider or a bystander not engaged, merely watching, they cannot experience the fullness of what just happened. But when engaged, they receive the joy of contributing to the win. Man, that's beautifully put. Active participation is investing ourselves, positioning ourselves for victory and joy. Doesn't that sound like I want to be positioned for victory and joy? The motive of our participation in God's events should start with a passionate relationship with him, as we expressed in worship this morning, wanting to do what he is asking us to do. At that point, when we obey, we step into the event at some level. Which level is our level doesn't matter as much as being obedient to step into it. So in the army of God, we all serve in different capacities. He has made us all uniquely with different gifts, and each of God's events requires all of us doing our part. We can't all be the star of the event, but even the stars, this is funny, even the stars need a water boy, and so many other aspects need someone to do something. The bottom line, and here's the summary of this word, the bottom line is that we need to participate, and then we realize that we are positioned as integral to the win. Then, when the win comes, we know that we are a part of it and there is a deep joy because our investment is rewarded with the fruit of our labors. And those of you that have invested yourselves in kingdom things, you know that often your flesh wants to ask, what's in this for me? And at face value, when we serve God, there's rarely anything in it for us. 
And yet what we find is that when we're obedient to what God calls us to do, the satisfaction that our souls long for is actually given back to us by God, right? Jesus said things like, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing things, and everything else you, you need will be taken care of, right? But often we seek the other things, and then we don't get Jesus, his kingdom, or the satisfaction, right? And so I just want to encourage you, as a church, God is inviting us to step in to some things that we prayed about at our prayer night this last week, and I want to ask you to seek the Lord about what is your part in it, but here's what you know the answer is not, nothing, you, you have a part in what God is doing. And your job is to step into that part in faith and let God take care of the rest. Okay, so I wanted to share that word with you. I felt like it was from the Lord. And you know what? Prophecy often works as a biblical, wise, and timely thing, right? And I felt like that was biblical, it was wise, and it was timely for the season we're in. And so that's just a, a way that we measure prophecy, right? Cool, okay. Are we ready to jump into the Word of God? You got your journals ready? You're going to want to take notes on this this morning because we're going to talk about some serious stuff. We're going to talk about some Christian stuff, not some cultural stuff, and we're going to talk about some things that we need to understand as Christians because it's a big part of the why behind Jesus died. It's, it's the why behind why we do the things we do. It's the why behind the mission in the world today, and we're going to jump into Acts chapter 5, but as we do, I want to ask you this question. When was the last Last time, when was the last time that you pretended to be something that you know you're not? We're, we're, moving towards a, we're moving towards a holiday in which people dress up in all sorts of costumes and, and have fun for one moment pretending what they're not. But how many of us in a workplace, we pretended to be what our boss really wants us to be? Right? Or how many of us, yeah, you're like every, every day, that's my job is to pretend to be what my boss wants me to be? Or, or how many of us have pretended to be what a spouse or a parent wants us to be, that we're like, ah, it's kind of like, you know, square peg, round hole, you know, kind of a thing. Or all of us can look back at the glorious school days where we, we pretended to be whatever we thought people wanted us to be, right? Just the torture of adolescence. I was thinking about that this week, and I was reminded when I was a junior in high school, my parents came to Jesus, kind of were, were radically changed and saved. Uh, unfortunately, I was a little slow on that, and so I didn't get what was going on, but they decided to put me in a new school, in a Christian school, and I thought, this is going to be the worst thing that ever happened to me. Like, I'm picturing, I had no idea what a Christian school was or did, but I pictured them putting me basically in a monastery where I wouldn't speak the language, I wouldn't know how people dressed, I thought there'd be uniforms and things like that. Like, I, I literally was panicking about what are these Christians going to act like? Like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to fit in with these people. Like, I know how to fit in with the popular crowd at my school, I know how to fit in with the athletes, I know how to fit in with these people, I know how to, but I don't know how to fit in with Christians, and I remember the first couple weeks on campus, I kept my head down. I was careful what I said. I was careful what I did. And I was studying the ways of these strange people called Christians. And to my pleasant surprise at the time, although later as I became a Christian, it was very disappointed me, I found that these people were just like me. They talked the same way that I did. They acted the same way that I did. They uh, treated their parents and other people the same way that I did. And, and by the way, none of those things were good. I just found that, oh, I fit right in here. Now, as I came to Christ over those next couple of years, I realized that's probably not the way it's supposed to be. And I want to ask you another question. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about people who call themselves Christians or even claim to believe the Bible, but their words and actions don't line up with it. Doesn't that just frustrate you? It should. It should frustrate you. Like, hypocrisy should frustrate us. We should also be careful to be judgmental, though, because we're all really good at being hypocrites, aren't we? Like, we're one step away from being a hypocrite anytime. So, 
As we look at the scriptures today, we're going to look at something different than what we've seen in the book of Acts so far. So far, we've seen the church, this newly formed church, Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, poured out his spirit on his people, this formed the church, and so far the church has faced external challenges. They have faced cultural challenges. They have faced crisis from the outside attacking the inside, and we've looked at that. And what we found is that even in crisis, we can flourish when we live the Jesus way. But what happens when we don't live the Jesus way? What happens when we try to claim spiritual blessings without sincere hearts towards God? That's a different kind of challenge. That's an internal challenge. That's not the test of external crisis. That's the test of internal integrity, and we're going to watch the church face this test in Acts chapter 5, and then ask some questions about where do we land on that, okay? So in Acts chapter 5, the context here is the church is flourishing despite crisis. Remember, the Holy Spirit's moving, people are getting healed, miracles are happening, and then the church is responding to God's generosity with their own hospitality and generosity. So the community is being built up, they're hosting people in their homes, they're giving money away like crazy. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful picture of what humanity is capable of when we're led by the Spirit of God. So the church is flourishing, and that's where we pick up here in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1, where it says, there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount, and with his wife's consent, he kept the rest. And then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified, as they should have been. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, took him out, and buried him. That's not in the usher job description, last time I checked. (laughs) Verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in, probably shopping with the extra money, not knowing what had happened, I mean, I'm trying to explain the scriptures here. (laughs) Verse 8, Peter asked her, was this the price that you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Anybody else, you hear that passage and you're suddenly like evaluating Like, did I lie about anything this week? Did I? Well, this is a heavy-duty passage, and and we can laugh about some things, but Ananias and Sapphira were real people. This was a real church service. The Holy Spirit was really moving, and in the midst of lots of people being healed, two people were struck down dead. And I think it's important that we we understand as the church of today what was happening in the church of that day And to do that, I want to start with what is not happening. Because passages like this, you can build some weird theology out of a story like this. You can get really superstitious, and we could start calling people out and just, you know, hey, you better watch out. You're going to die in church on Sunday, right? Like, we don't want to, that's not what this is about. So Ananias and Sapphira are judged by the Lord here. There's a judgment that happened. But what is it not? The first thing is it's not the result of financial unfaithfulness. Right, Peter says to Ananias, he said, hey, 
Why did you lie? The money was yours. The property was yours. You could do with it whatever you wanted to do. And I think that's important to understand. This wasn't a consequence because, like, they didn't pay their tithe on time, right? And, and we understand the Bible teaches us good principles for financial stewardship that honor God. We've talked about tithing the first and best 10% to God as a way of honoring him with our finances. We've talked about being generous and, and giving love offerings and supporting missions. And all these things are good parts of a healthy Christian's financial picture. But the Holy Spirit wants to lead us in generosity not punish us the minute that we're selfish. So this is not the result of financial unfaithfulness, according to the Apostle Peter. It's also not the consequence of an ignorant sin. In both cases, Peter mentions the intentionality of their sin. He, in, in, he mentions the deliberate nature of their sin. They knew what they were doing. They talked about it. They agreed to back each other up. They got their alibis aligned and they agreed together to try to deceive the church. Now, I don't know, I, we, we see in the previous chapter that certain people were being elevated, that they were being celebrated because their great generosity was blessing the community around them. So like human beings do, sometimes we do good deeds to get good attention to ourselves or feel good about ourselves, and that must have been the motive here, but it wasn't ignorant, we know that. And then third, it's not the way God always deals with all sin. And we can let out a collective breath. Whew. Praise Jesus. Which you already should have assumed that because if this was the way that God deals with all sin, none of us would have made it past the entryway, including me. Right? Like we would have dropped dead if every time we sinned, God was just like, boom, done. None of us would make it. We would all be, be gone. And the reality is that if God was just before he was merciful, if his justice was more important to him than his love for us, none of us would be here right now. We need to, we need to remember that. But this event, though it's unique, it's not totally isolated. We see some other examples in Scripture of God responding to certain sin this way. And we see a couple explanations in the New Testament. And this is a good note for when you're studying Scripture and you come across a story like this that's pretty weird. You're like, whoa, how does this fit in with Jesus' loving, gracious nature? How does this fit in with the forgiveness of God? How does this fit in with the gospel? What you need to do is before you go Google it or look for other theories or come up with your own idea is you have to look at the rest of Scripture to help you interpret Scripture. The Word of God helps explain and confirm itself. And so we're going to look at a couple other passages that speak to this. The first one being in 1 Corinthians 11. It's in the passage we often read or recite uh, as we receive the elements of communion and following an explanation of the communion as symbols of the body and blood of Jesus that remind us of the sacrifice that was paid for us, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. Again, another church, real people in a church service, and he says this, if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, the life that Jesus lived for us, then you are eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, like Ananias and Sapphira were, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now, he's speaking to Christians here, and he says that there are physical consequences to certain responses to Jesus. He says, you guys are not honoring what Jesus did for you, and therefore some of you, you're wondering why your bodies are so frail? You're wondering why you're always sick. You're wondering why some have even died before their time. He's like, I hate to tell you this, but God's not putting up with your misuse of his name. He's not putting up with Christians claiming to be Christians and dishonoring the price that Jesus paid to purchase your salvation. That's pretty heavy-duty stuff, right? Now, again, before we get superstitious, just because you get a cold or every time you get sick, it doesn't mean this is happening. This is one of the ways that God might seek to discipline his people 
to guard, what does it say? It says at the end, so that we won't be condemned along with the world. How could a Christian be condemned along with the world? How could, we, how could God's judgment in the form of sickness, weakness, or even physical death actually protect us from eternal consequences? And we see this in another passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Similar theme here, and we'll start in verse 26. In Hebrews 10, 26, it says this to the church. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning, and that is a great phrase to underline as a big why behind all of this stuff. If we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. Remember Matthew 25, God has prepared a punishment for the devil and his demons, but when we reject the grace of God, there's nowhere else for God to put us but with the devil and his demons. Verse 28, for anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses in the Old Testament was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Remember, the Old Testament law was a picture of truth and justice. Of, of It showed to us our sin and how it should be dealt with. And then Jesus extended us grace, though we deserved death. That's the, the, what that verse means there. So verse 29, now fast forward to the New Testament, just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant, Jesus' blood, which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. So what that's saying is that when we as Christians, we hear the good news of Jesus, that though we have committed sin, God sent his son to leave heaven by no obligation, to live a human life among brokenness in this world for no obligation, who then, though he was innocent, gave that life on the cross for us by no obligation and then through his resurrection and ascension has given us his Holy Spirit to lead us into his mercy by no obligation. When we hear that, we know that, we say, yes, I want to be forgiven of my sins. And we receive that good news, but then we say, so I guess now I can keep on sinning. I guess I'm just going to cash in those grace points for one more forgiveness on this one. I know God doesn't want me to do this, but you know what? Jesus died on the cross. Oh. The more you love Jesus, the more you understand that Jesus paid a price for me and you that is meant to be cherished, valued, that literally you and I deserve hell and Jesus died to keep us from it. I, I, I don't... There's not like a pretty way to say that. Like, what is sin? And, and if you're new with us this morning, sin is anything where we misuse a life that was given to us by God in any way outside of what God intended us to. And the simple way that God explains that is if you do anything, think anything, say anything, do anything that is not loving, totally loving towards the people around you and towards God himself, then that's sin. Selfishness and pride, which comes so naturally to us, lead us to sinful thoughts, actions, attitudes, and behaviors that in light of a holy God who has a perfect eternity in store for us, those sins deserve punishment. And God has withheld his punishment. He longs for us to come home to him, to be his children. He sent Jesus to die for us to have that opportunity. And when instead of responding in humility and gratitude, we, as the scriptures say, trample on the sacrifice of Jesus by deliberately sinning. We say, you know what? Jesus died so that I can do this. Jesus died so that I can get away with this. Jesus died so I don't have to, have to worry about this. When we trample on the Son of God, the Father does not put up with that. Nor should he. 
nor should he. And what we, what we see here in this story is Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira understand the gospel and they seek to deliberately sin knowing Jesus died for those sins in order to gain honor and accolade for themselves in this growing new movement called the church, really called the Jesus way at that point. And God understands that you don't value what Jesus did for you. You don't, you don't value what my son did for you. And he protected not only Jesus and the Holy Spirit's honor, he also protected the integrity of a church that was responding authentically to him. And that, I believe, is what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11. It's what we read about in Hebrews 10. Why did they die? Why does 1 Corinthians 11 say this and Hebrews 10 say this? It's because when we know the good news of Jesus and what it cost him to give it to us, we have an obligation, a holy, beautiful, wonderful obligation to treat him with the highest respect and consequently to treat our own sin with appropriate gravity. We cannot say that we know Jesus. You cannot say that I, I have come to Jesus, I am a follower of Jesus, and trample on the sacrifice of God by doing exactly what put him on the cross in the first place. Now that doesn't mean you and I will never sin again. We will. We, it, it's sown into us a little bit at this point. Jesus is leading us, the Holy Spirit's leading us into mercy, but that's a process what it does mean is we shouldn't take it lightly when we do. We shouldn't take it lightly when we do. And, and God loves his church. He loves Jesus. He loves those with a pure heart towards him enough to at times step in and say, I'm not gonna tolerate that anymore. And if anything, when I read this passage, I'm like, God, why don't you do that more often? Why don't you do that to more of the corrupt leaders in the church that lead people the wrong way? Like, could you pull the trigger a little quicker? That's just me, though. God's wiser and more gracious and more understanding than I am. I don't understand his timing. And while we could ask why that one and not that one, why this time and not this time, I think more importantly, we need to ask, God, what do I do to stay in the right place with you? Like, what do we as Sound Life Church do to stay in the place that God was trying to keep the early church? And first, we need to observe in this passage and all three of these passages, two threats to genuine relationship with Jesus. The first threat to the blessings of God are that we are so accustomed to sin, we don't realize its gravity. We're so used to it, we don't, we don't realize it, right? I mean, I've, I've known some people that grew up in some of the big cities in Southern California, and they, they move here and they say, man, I just never, I've never been able to see this far in the distance. I didn't realize the air could be this clean, because they grew up in cities where the smog and the pollution was very normal. Some of you, that's it. that is some of you. You're like, I just thought that was normal. I didn't know that there was, there was clarity out there. Right? And the Pacific Northwesterners keep it a little more of a secret, okay? <laughs> just kidding. But sin is like that. It's all around us. It's in us. We grew up with it. It's normal to us. We see it in the world. We see it in the church, unfortunately. We see it in our homes. And we think, eh, I'm just like everybody else. What's the big deal? We get used to sin, but human sin Selfishness and pride is the cause, the number one root cause of every bad thing in this world. Every bad thing, every broken thing in all of creation, God says it didn't have to be this way. But when human beings chose to reject God's way in, in preference of our way, we introduced brokenness, death, sickness, and evil into this world that was created good. Right? Sin is the cause of everything bad, including death. And so I want you to understand the Sound Life Church, we have to understand the gravity of sin. And I, I believe this sums it up. Sin is deadly to us. That's not an exaggeration. Sin is deadly to you. It is damaging to those around you, to everyone around you. And it is adulterous to God. Deadly, damaging, and adulterous. Now, again, I stand before you as someone who has committed plenty of sins, and I'm sure I will again. 
But may we not take lightly the price that was paid to set us free from those things. And may we not use that price as an excuse to keep on sinning. Sin is deadly. It is deadly. It is damaging to the people you love most. And it is adulterous to the God who gave everything for you. Which brings me to the other problem. This is the second threat to relationship with Jesus. Is that we get so entitled to grace that we don't realize what it costs to give it. We get so entitled. And here's, here's one of the sins that is normal in our culture. Is we think we deserve everything good and nothing bad. We deserve all the prizes, all the rewards, and none of the punishments, none of the consequences. Have you noticed that? We, we, our kids grow up in a culture, we grew up in a culture where we think we should get the participation prize in everything, and there should be no rules that end up with us, us getting a consequence. And so what that results in is that when God gives us grace, when we hear the gospel of Jesus, we misunderstand it in this way. We hear that Jesus died on the cross to save us from an eternity of hell, and our response is, yeah, I deserve that. Like, he should have done that. Like, if he's a loving God, obviously he should pay for my sins. Like, if he's a loving God, duh, why would he not save me? Now, we might not say that out loud. We're way too sophisticated for that. But often we live as if the grace of Jesus was owed to us, not purchased for us. Jesus' life in this broken world and his death, his innocent death for us were necessary. They were necessary to restore you and I to life. They were necessary to restore us to relationship with him. He had to do those things for me and you, or we had no hope. Without him doing those things, without us joining to those things, we have no hope. But when we come to Jesus, he receives us openly, and we have an unquenchable hope. The reality is, is that Jesus' unjust and brutal death is the only thing between us and a just sentence to hell. Again, some of you might be thinking like, yeah, I should have picked this week to skip church. This is heavy stuff. But I've often found in life that without understanding the price that was paid, we can't value anything that's given to us. Without understanding the cost behind it, we don't value those things, do we? And so sin has to be treated with gravity and grace should not be dealt with in an entitled attitude. What actually happened with Ananias and Sapphira is they took God so lightly they thought they could cheat the system. They're like, look, we can be generous and get God's blessings and the blessings of the church, and we can keep some and get the blessings of the world. Like, we can, we can double dip. And though we might say, oh, that was stupid, why would you think that? How often do we try to double dip and we try to get the blessings of God? God, I want your presence, I'm waiting on you, I'm waiting on you. Oh, there's a better option. I'm waiting on you for that spouse that I long for. Oh, somebody gave me attention, I'll go with that. I'm waiting on you for your guidance on my career. Oh, somebody offered me more money, I'll go with that. I'm waiting on you to hear your plan for my life. This seems convenient. I'll go here. Right, like how often do we kind of try to like give God the lip service and get a little bit of attention for doing the Christian thing and it's not authentic in our lives? We don't want to do that. That's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They were wanting God's blessings and the world's. And at this critical moment in the early church, God didn't allow it. He wasn't going to allow his church to be stained in that way. Now, throughout history, we know that there are plenty of people that have stained the reputation of the church. Jesus gets blamed for a lot of our messy choices, doesn't he? But we shouldn't be okay with that. So, how should we respond this morning? How should we respond? The first thing, and can I just, before I get into that, can I just say, I hope that you want to respond. Like my hope is that, like me, I read this passage and I'm like, Lord, I don't, 
I have so much potential to be Ananias and Sapphira. I don't want to be like that. I hope that your heart is longing to be like the passage before it where people are giving their life away, but they can't outgive God. That the goodness of God, I want to be in that place where, where I'm trying to outgive God and seeing the wonders of a God who loves and saves and does miraculous things. But what, how do we have to deal with our sin in order to stay in that place is the question that we need to ask. And the first thing that we see in these passages is that we have to honestly examine ourselves. You know, that word examine in 1 Corinthians 11, it's kind of a legal term, right? In light of God's judgment, he says, you can either examine yourself in that moment of communion before you receive the elements to examine, is my heart right before God? Am I selfless? Am I grateful before God? You can examine yourself or the judge will examine you. Right? So we need to honestly, sometimes we need the help of the Holy Spirit every time, but sometimes with a fine-toothed comb, just say, Lord, search my heart, search my motives. David prayed these prayers in the Psalms, search my heart and know me, O God. See if there's anything offensive to you in me and lead me in the way everlasting, Psalm 139, right? Lead me in the way that's pleasing to you. I pray that prayer often. I'm like, God, there's probably sins in my heart that I'm not even aware of, that I'm just like pride and selfish. I don't want to be that way. And we know they're there because sometimes we act in certain ways. We're like, where did that come from? Where, where did that attitude come from? There's something there that the Holy Spirit needs to work out. We have to honestly examine ourselves. And here's the good news. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one 31 that we read, it says, if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Right? Like God doesn't want to drop the hammer on us. He spent all of eternity being patient with our nonsense, saying, will you come back to me and let me show you the way this life was meant to be lived? Will you quit wasting your life and let me show you how to live your life with purpose? And we have to sometimes examine ourselves. And this looks like a regular, honest reflection on the condition of our hearts. But did you notice it says, if we would examine ourselves, it means that your job is not to examine everybody else. It means that your job is not to start looking around like, oh yeah, yeah, I hope Jim starts to examine himself over there. I mean, whew, selfish guy. Whew. I hope Kevin will start examining himself. I mean, man, I, I hope Ben will start examining himself. Like, I hope, these, I hope they will hear what Caleb's saying right now. Nope. God is the only one that gets to examine everybody else. You know who you get to examine? Yourself. Yourself. So this is a regular, honest reflection on the condition of your heart. You have to ask the Holy Spirit, and I will pray this, Holy Spirit, show me. That prayer from Psalm 139 is really powerful. Search my heart. Search my heart, God. See if there's anything offensive in me, and lead me in the way that is eternal life. Lead me in the Jesus way. I want the Jesus way, so search me, God. Know me. And help me to understand what the next step is, right? And then when we see sin, it brings me to the second thing, that we have to ruthlessly reject our sin. Ruthlessly reject our sin. Galatians 5.24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, which when you see that phrase, you should be like, ooh, pick me! I want to belong to Jesus! Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. That means that we say, if Jesus died for it, then this is going on there too. If this caused Jesus to die, then get up there and die with him. I'm not going to tolerate this selfishness, this sin, this pride, this addiction, this ugliness, this waste of potential, this laziness, this poor attitude. It's going to die with Jesus. Amen. And you know what Jesus said about it? Now, again, he was using hyperbole to show you how radically we should reject sin. But he said, hey, if your eye is causing you to sin, it'd be better for you to poke your eye out than keep sinning and wasting your life. If your hand is causing you to sin, it'd be better for you to cut the hand off than to keep, oh, I sinned again. Oops. Well, I hope Jesus forgives me again. 
Here's the thing. We have so peddled and sold grace to the world, hoping that we could just build a crowd, that we have minimized the importance of sin to the point that as Christians, we tolerate sin. And it's unacceptable. Jesus is worthy of more. You, I don't care how old or young you are in this room, do not tolerate sin in your life. Not if you love Jesus one little bit. Don't put up with it in your life. When you see it, you say, God, forgive me, help me. Holy Spirit, help me to crucify this desire. Oh, I hate that. I wish he wouldn't have said, crucify your passions and desires. I wish he would have said, crucify things you don't like. But instead he said, everything you're passionate about and desirous of, everything that you crave and you want that is not from God, kill it. Do you know what that implies? Pain. That your own desires you have to put to death. It means that there's going to be discomfort involved. It means that there's going to be inconvenience involved. Do you know why? Because sometimes it means that you're going to have to avoid and abstain from areas of temptation. Maybe even things that don't tempt other people, you have to stay away from because you're like, I'm not committing adultery on Jesus again. I'm not cheating on Jesus one more time. I'm not going close to that. I'm not going to touch that. I'm not going to play with that. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to think about that. You can do that all you want. Maybe you're good with that, but I'm not going there because I love Jesus too much. Now again, you're supposed to crucify your passions and desires. Not every time somebody else has a passion and desire, you're like, oh, let me crucify that for you. Uh. Oh, that's not pleasing to Jesus. Let me kill that right now. Too many Christians misunderstood that Jesus already died for their sins. You don't need to kill them for it. We have to take it seriously enough to live differently than the world around us. That means just because everybody else is watching it doesn't mean you should watch it. Just because everybody else is smoking it, absorbing it, drinking it, eating it, whatevering it, doesn't mean you should. Because your life was bought at a price, the highest price. The king of the universe thought you were so valuable to give his very best for you, and it cost him everything. It cost him everything. What is the appropriate response to that? It's only to say, Jesus, it all belongs to you. It is all yours. Every breath that I breathe, every beat that you bless this heart with, every synapse in my brain, it belongs to you because apart from you, I have no hope, but in you, I have the hope of eternity that cannot be taken away from me. No disease, no death, no dictator can take away the hope that you give me, Jesus. So I give it all to you. We have to ruthlessly reject our sin. We could probably all take a page from the book of Alcoholics Anonymous or other addiction recovery that say, hey, don't forget you are always an addict. You better stay away from that stuff. Don't you believe the lie, I think I'm okay now. You stay away from that stuff that seeks to destroy your life. And church, what a beautiful testimony to the world around us when Jesus is worth more to us than all of our cheap passions and desires. Lastly, we should seek to radically respect our king. Proverbs 1, 7 says that the fear of the Lord, that's reverence, honor, deep respect, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Man, do you know what that says? That says that American culture right now is a bunch of fools. We hate wisdom and discipline as a society. If we want to be smart, if we want to live this life the way it was meant to be lived, then it starts by us honoring God. We don't even really have cultural pictures of this anymore because we hate authority and we tear it down. We want everybody to be so equal that nobody gets any honor, even when it's well-deserved. That's a different sermon. But the point is, we don't have great images, but think back of, of the knight in, in armor who swears his life to his Lord and King and says, I will live or die at your will. 
That's reverence. Think about, think about the man who pledges his love to a woman for his whole life, and he says, no matter what happens, I will love you and serve you all the days of your life. And then when he follows through on that, when she's sick, when he follows through on that, when they're not on the same page, when he follows through on that when they can't have kids or when they have too many kids or when they don't have enough money or they spend the money in the wrong way or all the other things that could be opportunities for disrespect. Instead, he says, no, I swore to you that I would love you. Where is the tenacious honor of Jesus that looks like that? Do you love your king that way? Do you live every day like you would die for Jesus? but it's better to live for Jesus. Do you have anything in your life that is worth living for like that? When we radically respect our king, it changes the way that we think, changes the way that we act, it changes the way that we parent, it changes the way that we treat our coworkers, it changes everything, but love and grace offered to us by a perfect king are not to be taken for granted. You know, as a teenager, and I'm gonna ask the worship team to come in here and in traditions and we'll prepare to close this morning. As a teenager, I didn't always have the best relationship with my parents. And I remember um, at times doing what my parents wanted because I respected them, but I didn't like them. We can probably all relate to that. Right? And, and sometimes it could be stated probably even a little bit more harshly. Like, it wasn't even that I felt like I was, there was no honor that I was feeling towards my parents, but I feared the consequences that my dad would bring. I feared the consequences. I knew they would be there if I got caught, if this happened. And there were times where that fear of those consequences protected me from doing some things that now I can tell you for sure I would have regretted. Now, I, as, a, as a parent myself, I understand so much more of the choices of my parents. I love my parents more now than I ever have in my entire life. I honor them now. I praise God for the dad that I was given, because so many people aren't given a dad like that. I praise God for them. But there was a time when there was only fear, between, fear of them between me and some decisions that would have changed the course of my life. Fear and choices that would have hijacked my life, that probably would have prevented me from even standing on this stage right now and fulfilling the calling that God had in mind for me. Only fear. But that fear was just the beginning. And as I got more time and more perspective and more maturity and more life experience, that fear shifted to love. That fear shifted to gratitude. That fear shifted to like, wow. They were looking out for me. I thought they were oppressing me, but they were looking out for me. So often when we hear messages like this, it's easy for us to think, man, God, you are so controlling. Make one wrong move. That's not it at all. God has given so much grace because he has so much love for you, so much love for me. It's good for us to remember sometimes that he has that much love and grace for the world out there too. They might not be living in the fear and reverence and respect of him, but he has that same love for them. And unless they see in us a correct response, they will go on believing that he's oppressive, controlling, distant, non-existent, not loving. But when they see in us people that are willing to examine themselves honestly, people that take sin really seriously because we take relationship with Jesus seriously, and people that will not treat Jesus as if he's some cheap equal, but we treat him like someone that has offered something we didn't deserve and received us in a way we didn't deserve. All of a sudden, the world sees maybe there is something worth 
living for. Maybe God is loving, not hateful. But we have to take sin seriously. I think it's amazing. The next passage in Acts chapter five reads this way, and I'll close with this. And then we're gonna seek the Lord together. But in Acts chapter five, the next passage after the great fear gripped the entire church in verse 11, it says in verse 12, the apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. Think, is that good or bad? It's good. And all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them even though all the people had high regard for them. Except, verse 14 says, yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord. Crowds of both men and women. Crowds of men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Why? Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits and they were all healed. Good or bad? Good. Do you know sometimes the Lord has to restoke the fear of the Lord so that we can handle the blessings of the Lord? Sometimes he has to bring us back to a place of repentance so that we can live in a place of his blessing. And that is our appropriate response when we examine ourselves, when we recognize sin. We have to respond in repentance, turning away, ruthlessly rejecting that and respecting God with all that we have. And when we do, we open ourselves to whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. And that's where we want to live. That's where we want to live. And so I'm going to turn traditions over to Pastor Shannon and I'm going to ask you in this room to stand with me. And I just want to ask today before we go, would you practice those three things? Now when I say practice, I am not saying intellectualize them. That's not a bad starting point. I'm also saying don't just emotionalize them. That might be part of the process, but that's not the end goal. Jesus died on the cross to offer you real, real relationship with him. And he has poured out his spirit so that you can sense his power and his goodness in your life. And so where are you at in that process today? Starts with examining yourself. If you find sin, ruthlessly reject it in the presence of God If you need to come talk to one of our pastors down here on the front row, you can come talk to us and be like, hey, I just want to talk to you about this. But ruthlessly reject sin in your life. And then can we give Jesus the respect and honor he deserves? Before we go out and live a life of this, can we practice that in this room for just a moment? So examine yourself. Reject sin. Respect your king in action, in word, not just internally. Let's practice this as the worship team leads us.